Right, let's read together, shall we, from Matthew chapter 21. We're looking at the next instalment of the story of the life of Jesus, and we'll start in Matthew 21 and verse 1. Uh, if you remember over the last few weeks, we talked about how Jesus has uh, gone on his last mission trip. He's just been through Jericho. He's uh, healed Bartimaeus and his, his friend, uh, the, the, the blind beggar. Uh, he's uh, seen Zacchaeus and brought him down from his tree. And now he's walked to Jerusalem. So, verse uh, 1 of chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to this village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied uh, there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, look, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard? From the lumps of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them, and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Okay, that's the story we'll be looking at in a minute. First, though, back in 1964, John Lennon gave an interview to uh, a journalist called Maureen Cleave, which was pretty much disastrous for the Beatles' career. It meant they had to stop touring because there was so much hate mail and so many assassination threats, they didn't do it any longer. What he said was this, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right. I will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And then he said Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's their twisting it that ruins it for me. And he tried to get to, to recover a little bit and said this, I believe Jesus was right, Buddha was right, and all of those people like that are right. They're all saying the same thing, and I believe it. I believe what Jesus actually said, the basic things he laid down about love and goodness and, and not what people say, he said. Now, this created a storm, as you probably know. It meant that the Beatles could never tour again. <laughs> and uh, uh, John Lennon later in his life said sarcastically, I say thanks to Jesus every day that I could give up touring at that point. He did it for me. But uh, Christianity will go. It will vanish. It will fade. 
I don't need to argue. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. Well, 60 years next year since that quotation famously was made, and uh, it doesn't look like Christianity will go at all. It's not vanishing. It's not shrinking. In fact, it's getting bigger. But just how big is it getting? There's a lot of stuff going around at the moment, uh, news items and others, saying that uh, Islam, not Christianity, is becoming the biggest faith in the world. This is a Muslim website that's making that claim. Um, here's another one. Which religion will be the largest by the end of the century? Islam is not only the world's fastest growing religion today, but it's projected to be the largest one by 2075. Is Islam becoming bigger? Is Christianity shrinking and fading? As Lenin once said, here's the Morocco World News. Um, uh, giving the figures on that one. And there are so many sites like this, even Voice of America are saying that now, Islam is going to be bigger than Christianity. What is this based on? Well, it's based on one report by uh, the Pew uh, organization in America, the polling organization, which uh, pointed out that far back that the rate of birth of, of uh, uh, children in different faiths is getting to, 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 to be interesting. Between 2010 and 2015, says The Guardian, reporting on this, an estimated 31% of babies born in the world to be Muslim parents, exceeding the 24% share of the world's population held by Muslims. That means more Muslim babies. In the same period, 33% of the world's babies were born to Christians. And so, obviously, this has implications. Between 2030 and 2035, slightly more babies will be born to Muslims than to Christians. Okay, it's only 225 million against 224 million, but it's significant. Between 2055 and 2060, the gap is expected to widen to 6 million. Meanwhile, there are more Christians dying. Deaths among Christians in Europe are far outstripping births. And Christians have accounted for a disproportionate 37% of the world's deaths in recent years. So if you're not a Christian, you're thinking about it, probably better not to because you might die. But anyhow... Um, you can see what's going on here. They're not really talking about Christians by conversion or by conviction. They're talking about people who are born in that kind of atmosphere. And that certainly doesn't account for all of the Christians in the world. Whereas all of the people who are born Muslim, even if they live all of their lives within a Muslim culture, may not be convinced Muslims, may not be very good Muslims. And so it's apples and pears, really. What is actually going on? We're going to have a look at that tonight. We're talking about, does conversion really work? Does it actually happen, or is it all just uh, made out of nothing? We talked about it last week, and we ended up with two five questions that we didn't discuss. One of them, are people still getting converted today? What do the figures actually look like? Is it still happening to people around the world, or is it something that's now out of date and just not happening any longer? You would get the impression from the press and the media in Western Europe that nobody's becoming a Christian any longer. Is that actually the case? And the other question is, what other explanations might there be? If people don't really meet God when they're converted, if they don't really get to know Jesus, What's the explanation? Is it psychological? Is it sociological? Can you explain it all the way? When people say, I have found God, are they saying the truth? Or are they just uh, deluded in some kind of a way? That we're going to have a look at tonight. So if you're able to come tonight, that's what we're going to be exploring uh, in our evening service. However, let's get back to Matthew 21, which is uh, the next bit of the Jesus story. I remember that we're talking uh, just recently about the way in which Jesus journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem in several stages. And last time we talked about the three journeys that were involved in it. Jesus came first of all from Galilee, where he was living, living and working for some years, down to Judea, knowing that he was on a course towards his death, knowing that the time was coming when he would have to give up his life. 
He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem and travel down there. But uh, he, he didn't stay, stay there to start with. Uh, the, the first journey was Galilee to Judea. And we said that on that journey, he was preaching about understanding the kingdom more than anything else. The second journey, he went from Judea into Perea, that uh, countryside uh, region on the, the other side of the River Jordan. And there he taught uh, some things he'd never taught before and to some people he'd never uh, taught to before. And here he talked about entering the kingdom, the necessity of making a choice. Finally, having gone back to Judea for Lazarus, uh, who had died and raising him from the dead, he had to go to Ephraim, that small town north of Judea. And uh, the final journey is Ephraim into Jerusalem. And you hear him preaching and talking and all the time uh, while that's going on about living the kingdom, the standards of living in God's kingdom. Because Jesus was a new kind of king. And this story that we're looking at this morning talks about what kind of a king Jesus was. We've got to focus on this last week of Jesus' life for the whole of the rest of this series. And you might be thinking, well, it's only December. How are you going to pad this out until Christmas? Well, there's no padding out required, I can tell you. If you look at the Gospels, you'll find a large chunk of the Gospels talks about this last week in Jesus' life. Because it's the most important part of all. Hugh Bonneville, Lord Grantham of, uh, I was going to say Faulty Towers, but it's not, is it? Um, yeah, uh, uh, made a programme back in 2018 just before Easter, about the last six days of Jesus' life. And Bill, who, as well as a, a very good actor, is also a Cambridge graduate in theology, said this, whether you are a person of faith or none, you cannot escape the fact that the last six days of this man's life and his death changed the world. And so we need to look in some detail about what goes on in Jesus' final week. Just for, to give you a quick preview, this is what it looks like from the Sunday through to the Saturday. On the Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the story we read this morning. And as we also read on that story, he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money mongers. He curses the fig tree, but we'll deal with that next time. And then on the Tuesday, uh, the fig tree's withered and Jesus is teaching and arguing in the temple. On the Wednesday, we're not too sure what happened, but we assume that he was still teaching. Uh, he was still healing because that was going on as well, as we'll see. And he had confrontations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were getting more and more concerned about him and saying, this man has got to go. This cannot be allowed to continue. Then you've got the final stage. And from Thursday through to Saturday, you have Jesus betrayed, arrested, tried, killed, and put in in, in, in him. And of course, the following Sunday is <laughs> a completely different story, but we'll get to that. So that's basically where we are. And we're on the first two days of that, really, this morning. And that, I, as I say, this tells us a little bit about the kind of king who's coming to Jerusalem. Jesus must have thought an awful lot about how he should arrive in Jerusalem. And that presumably why he made some arrangements about a donkey before he even started. Because he wanted to come in in just the right way. He was a king, but he was a different kind of a king. And he was a king who was on his way to crucifixion and death. How do you actually present yourself when you're coming? How do you make sure you're sending out the right message about who you are and what you've come to do? And so he must have prepared very carefully. I think in this story, we've got three things. First of all, the king and the city. Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Stopping just as he sees the city and, and bursting into tears, as one of the other Gospels tells us. And saying, Luke, uh, and saying, how often had I've gathered you under my wings like a hen gathers her chickens. But you wouldn't. You kept turning away from me. 
And Jesus is clearly really, really affected by the sight of Jerusalem below him. The king in the city. I think what that tells us about is the humility of the king. But we'll see in a moment. And then there's the king in the temple. He goes into the temple. He clears out the money changers and people like that. Then there's the king and the people. Because he spends the rest of the week teaching people, healing people, dealing with people as individuals, watching people. So the king and the people is the third thing. I think you see three things about the king, just to give you where we're going with this. The king in the city, I think, tells us that he's a king of humility. He's somebody who doesn't want to be seen just as another great man. He's someone who's coming in humility to do a job, a servant of God. And although he is the king, the most important human being ever to have lived in the history of the universe, nonetheless, he's there to serve. And he's not going to claim rights for himself. He's there to do something that nobody else could do. Second, he's a king of holiness. And this is why in the temple, as he clears everything out, one of the Psalms gets fulfilled, which says, the zeal for your house, for your honour, has consumed me. It's eaten me up. And you see somebody who's on flame, passion, impassioned about the, 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 the honour of God's temple and the way it's been cheapened and trivialised and tarnished by the way it's been, be, been uh, dealt with. And he has to sweep this out as part of his, his, his mission to serve God. And finally, he's a king of hope. <laughs> and he brings, even in that last week of his life, when I think I would be so focused on what was going to happen to me that I couldn't think about anything else, in that last week of his life, he's still healing and helping and bringing hope and comfort and building a future that goes beyond death and beyond his resurrection into a whole new era when he won't be there physically. But his work will go on and lives will continue to be unlocked, released and helped through what he's doing now. He's a king of hope as well. So let's just look at those three things for a few minutes this morning. First of all, king in the city. Jesus comes in from Jericho. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not he was in Bethany the night before or whether he's just marching down the road from Bethany, from, from uh, Jericho and coming straight into the city. The Gospels don't make that clear, although they suggest that he's just on the road. And if so, then he's, he's had a hard day already. And maybe that's why it says uh, in one of the accounts that uh, Jesus went into the temple and had a look around, but it was getting towards night, so he went out to Bethany. Perhaps that's because he'd already had most of the day travelling. You see, you're going a long way uphill from Jericho to, to, to Jerusalem. Do you remember when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan? He talks about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, it really was quite a, quite a difference. And when you're coming up the other way, it wasn't an easy road. This is the road from Jericho, even as it looks today. And as you'll see, in some places, it skirts along the top edge of a, a, a cliff which runs along the side of a, a, a riverbed. And uh, it's a very narrow, winding road. At some pla in many places, in fact, you can only have one person stepping down it at a time. Which puts a new light on the Good Samaritan, doesn't it? Because if the priest and Levite had to step over the man who was lying there groaning, that's, that's even more cruel than, than you might imagine. So, um, this is the road that Jesus and his disciples came up. And they came up to uh, Bethphage, that, uh, that uh, place called the House of Figs, on the way into Jerusalem. And from there, Jesus is on a donkey and riding up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And when he reaches that point, that's uh, the end of the red line there, that's where he sees Jerusalem spread out before him and he bursts into tears. If you want to see what it looks like today, those places aren't far apart. Uh, Bethany is maybe two miles at the most outside of Jerusalem. It's a suburb of the city now, there's Bethphage, and there is the temple where Jesus is headed. So Jesus sees <coughs> uh, 
tells some of his disciples to go to the village, presumably that's Bethany, where he's arranged for there to be a donkey to, 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 to be picked up for him, and he rides on the donkey into Jerusalem. What do you see about that journey into Jerusalem? Which, as I say, Jesus must have planned very carefully. I think you see three things. First of all, you look at the route. He's coming to Jerusalem over the top from the Mount of Olives. And might think, fair enough. But there were actually three routes he could have taken. Certainly, this is the popular one. This is the, the, the main way into Jerusalem. But coming into Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives would have reminded just about everybody who saw his, his, him coming into the temple of what Ezekiel saw years and years before, just before the people of Israel lost their city, before they were taken off into captivity. Ezekiel had a vision when he saw the glory of God in the holy place in the temple. Leave that holy place and travel out of Jerusalem towards the east. And the glory of God left the temple. God was saying this temple is finished. It's discredited. It's over. You're going into exile. And the glory of God removed itself up onto the Mount of Olives. And there was a story, completely um, an unbiblical story, but a story that the rabbis used to tell about how after the glory of God had left the temple and gone up onto the mountain, it hung around the Mount of Olives for a month, hoping that the people could repent and it could come back. But it never could, and so it just disappeared. And now here's Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives and going into the temple. It must have seemed like a reversal of everything that Ezekiel had been talking about. The glory of God is returning at last. What is going on here? Then second, you notice the donkey. Why is Jesus sitting on a donkey? Well, again, that's based in Old Testament prophecy. If you look back to Zechariah chapter 9, you find that Zechariah makes a prophecy about the son of David who will return as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Deliverer to Jerusalem. And Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. <laughs> and so that would, again, would have come straight into the mind of everybody who saw Jesus sitting on a donkey, riding down the hill towards the temple, saying, I'm a king, but I'm a different kind of a king. I'm a king who lives in humility. And Zechariah talks about that donkey as a symbol of the way that this, this king will be different from every other. He won't be like the conquerors of the nations, the world empires that were big in Zechariah's day. They'll all have crumbled and faded away by this point. Jesus is coming on his donkey. And so that's another thing. The third thing is the coats and the branches. People laid down their coats and put them, first of all, on the back of the donkey to provide a, a seat for Jesus because he had no saddle or anything like that. Then they spread them on the ground as a kind of impromptu red carpet for him to go on. And they, they, they seized the palm branches and put them on the ground as well. Why palm branches? Well, apparently that was a way of welcoming into a city the, the victor, the conqueror. Uh, an army general who just won a battle would come in in that way. A king or a Roman governor would come in that way. And you'd wave branches and you'd put them on the ground to say, we are glad to see you. Jesus, the king comes into his city, but he comes in in a calculated, humble way. Harry Kemp, an American poet of the early 20th century, wrote a poem about the conquerors. That's the title of it. And he, in, in the poem, he goes through all of the people who've conquered in the past. I saw the conquerors riding by. It starts with trampling feet of horse and men. Empire on empire, like the tide, flooded the world and ebbed again. 
A thousand banners caught the sun and cities smoked along the plain and laden down with silk and gold and heaped up pillage groaned the wain. And he talks about some of these people, Alexander, uh, Napoleon, uh, Julius Caesar, and like a thing from hell, the Hun, he says. And all of these people, Genghis Khan, are named and described in his poem. And then he says in the very last verse, then all they perished from the scene as fading shadows from a glass and conquering down the centuries came Christ the swordless on an ass <laughs> different kind of a king a king of humility do you remember him at the feast where he that there were Greeks who wanted to see Jesus and the disciples came to Jesus and said do you want to see these people and Jesus, Jesus said listen this is important the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified Look, people from all over the place, not just Jews, coming and paying attention. Now, God is about to do something really special through me. But what is that really special thing? Very tr truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then he applied the lesson. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow and so we follow a king, if we're Christians, who gave his life in service. And we've got to be prepared for the same thing, to lay down our lives, to say no to our own agenda, to allow him to be first and his purposes to be completed through us and follow the king of humility. There are two other things to say about it. First, uh, first of all, we need to talk about the king and the temple, don't we? Jesus goes into the temple, upturns the tables of the money changers, and uh, 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 drives out people who are selling livestock in the temple courts. There's a question here, and the question is this. How many times did Jesus cleanse the temple? <laughs> you see, there's a story in John's Gospel about how the temple was cleansed by Jesus, but that happens in chapter 2, right at the start of Jesus' ministry. So, did Jesus do it twice? Once three years before the one that we're talking about, and then this one at the end of his life? Or did he just, just do it once, and John has transplanted that story to another part of Jesus' life? We just don't know. You see, the Gospel writers did sometimes rearrange material to suit the purpose and the point that they were trying to make. They weren't committed to tell a chronological story. So it might be that John is telling the same story, just at a different time in Jesus' life, but... Then again, many scholars have looked at it and said, no, these stories are quite different in the way they're described. And we really just don't know what the situation is. But certainly we know that this happened. Okay, At the end of Jesus' life, Jesus goes into the temple and upturns the tables. You might think, how could one man go into the temple like that and make it all happen? Well, the, the, this is what the temple looked like. And the place where uh, all of the buying and selling went on was a thing called the Court of the Gentiles. And it's the coloured area there big open space but actually if you think about it the temple is right up at the top it's hot time of day uh, the sun is baking hot and most of them would be around the edges under the shelter uh, there's a portico that runs all the way around you can probably just see it there pillars and a, 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 a roof on it and that meant that you could set up your stall and be out of the baking sun so probably Jesus uh, was simply going around the porticos and knocking over tables there and, and getting people out of the way and uh, because everybody was concentrating in a very small space that would be easy to happen why did he do that? did Jesus just lose his temper? don't they do? Uh, 
Frederick Farrar, who wrote a great life of Jesus in the 19th century, um, he was a larger-than-life character, Farrar. He was married in St. Leonard's Church in Exeter, I found out, uh, the other day, and his wife had ten children within the next five years. So he was a busy boy. But uh, Farrar uh, wrote about why it was that um, uh, Jesus was so upset. He talked about the way that, over the years, people had started using the entrance to the temple as a way of, of selling things and changing money. He says this, They're in the actual court of the Gentiles. Steaming with heat in the burning April day and filling the temple with stench and filth were penned whole flocks of sheep and oxen. There were the men with their great wicker cage filled with doves and under the shadow of the arcade sat the money changers with their tables covered with piles of various small coins. And this was the entrance court to the temple of the Most High. And Jesus couldn't stand it. This commerce in the temple itself ridiculous. And as he... Uh, it would feel it would seem some of the rushes from the floor and turn me into a sort of uh, improvised whip and just whip people out of the way with it. He was quoting two Bible verses. He said, "You've turned this place into a den of robbers, and that's not the way it should be." First of all, that phrase "den of robbers" that comes from Jeremiah seven eleven, and in the Old Testament, Jeremiah says uh, about it talks about all sorts of things that are going on in the Jerusalem temple that shouldn't be. And uh, God says through Jeremiah, Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to eat? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And this all happened, remember, in the court of Gen the Gentiles. Now that was the only part of the temple that non-Jews were allowed to come into. And that's important too. And that's what really upset Jesus. This is happening in the one place where people from the nations can come and worship God. You've turned it into a supermarket. And uh, if, you, if you look at it, there's the, there's the uh, court of the Gentiles once again. Uh, and, and what Isaiah predicts in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus comes along, is that this is going to be a most important part of the temple because this is where non-Jews will be able to build. Foreigners who bound themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus is saying this is supposed to gather the nations of the world around. They, they worship the God whom you worship. And you should be so concerned about God being honoured and worshipped that you just want to, 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 to bring people in here. And what do you do instead? You use it as a place to sell, uh, sell doves and exchange money for Jews. And the nations don't look in anywhere in the temple because you've made God your personal property. And Jesus is so appalled at what is going on that he's got to do something about it. Yes, it was just symbolic. All the money changes were probably back within a few days. But nonetheless, it was important for him to do that because he was, he was determined that the, the establishment the religious machinery that was making some people very rich and keeping other people very poor should be challenged and should be confronted. And we need to, 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 to look at that carefully, I think, in our own day. Because we've been through a few years in which the church worldwide, the religious establishment, has uncovered all sorts of scandals about child abuse, about money, about covering up things that are wrong about depriving people of their rights and it's caused such a stench in the, in, in the media over the last few years we need to recognise that this is a tendency that can happen again and again when God's business becomes a human business becomes commercial 
becomes a power structure. And someone who is following the Lord Jesus will be more concerned about truth, honesty and reality than he will be about preserving their good name. Jesus was so concerned with the honour of God, he wasn't at all concerned with the honour of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their business. And so he was a king of holiness. Somebody to whom God's holiness, God's otherness, God's awesome authority mattered more than anything else. But the third thing, and that's the king and the people. Jesus started on these two days the teaching program in the temple that was going to go on all week until his arrest. Now again, where you would teach was, would be what was called Solomon's porch. And that's those porticos that run all the way around the court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus would have sat through the week and all sorts of people would have come and listened to him there. Who exactly listened to Jesus' teaching? I, I can think of six different groups that were involved. First of all, crowds from the city. Lots of people who had not heard much of Jesus before. He'd been in Jerusalem for Passovers in the past. He may or may not have stuck in people's minds. That's why so many people, when he was coming down the hill from the Mount of Olives, were saying, who is this? And others say, oh, it's Jesus. He's the prophet from Galilee. You must have heard of him. No. And so as a result, crowds from the city started to come to listen to what Jesus had to say. But also, there were plenty of Jesus' disciples and supporters there as well. When he came into the city, there were 100, 150 people following him who'd come with him all the way down from Galilee and who had attached themselves to Jesus because they, they, they were followers, some of them very close, like the Twelve, some of them right on the fringes, but nonetheless interested enough and committed enough to want to see what happened next. So they were around as well. And there were children. We know that children were shouting, Hosanna, in the temple. And the word Hosanna simply means save, rescue us. Acclaiming Jesus as a rescuer, as a saviour. And the children were getting involved in that and getting right up the nose of the temple authorities by doing so. There's a suggestion that some of those children were children who were being trained in the temple to be temple singers. A bit like choristers in Exeter Cathedral or something like that. And if so, that would really have annoyed the authorities, wouldn't it? But uh, uh, Jesus was a magnet for children. He drew people to him, and, and young people flocked to him especially. They could recognise something in him that was real, that was genuine, and that they could relate to. And so there were children. There were also foreign pilgrims, many, many of them. At this time in Jerusalem, people came for the Passover, and the, the city just swelled in size. It was normally 250,000 in population, the city of Jerusalem, but it, it swelled to almost 2.5 million at the time of the Passover. If you want to put that into context, that's a city that is three times the size of Paynton, becoming 30 Paintons <laughs> overnight. And so you have all of these people there as well, from all over the place, foreign pilgrims. And many of them would have been back on the day of Pentecost later on, and would still have been there on the day of Pentecost, and they'd have been the three th among the 3,000 who became Christians at that point. Also, we hear in the Gospels, in John's Gospel particularly, but there were leaders who were listening to Jesus, and they were secret sympathizers with Jesus, but because of their fear of the establishment, they couldn't speak out. So all of these people were listening. There was one other group as well, though, and uh, Luke talks about that one. He says that the blind and the lame came to Jesus in Solomon's porch, and he healed them. So those quiet miracles were going on through the week as well. And there were people all the time who were not listening. <laughs> who weren't listening? The chief priests... The teachers of the law, the elders of the people, those are the three groups that are mentioned as just rejecting Jesus completely. And they're the ones who started the plot against him. And they tried to catch Jesus out through the week to shame him in the eyes of other people. First of all, they tried to trap him openly. They march up to him and say, who's given you the authority to preach as you are doing? 
And Jesus' answer just confounds him. We've no time to go into that this morning. They try to trap him politically. They bring him a coin. It's the Herodians who are behind this one. They're the ones who are supporters of the Herod dynasty, and they don't want to see the political situation in the country made unstable. So they come to Jesus with this coin and say, do we pay tax to Caesar or not? And once again, Jesus comes up with an answer that leaves him confounded. Then they try to trap him logically. This is the Sadducees, the people who don't believe that there's life after death. And so they come up with this made-up story about a woman who has seven husbands, seven brothers, all in a row, one after another, and they all die. I always think that brothers six and seven must have been really dumb, seeing what to the five before them. But still, anyhow, they all get married to her, they all died. And twitch, so whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? It's ridiculous, isn't it, Jesus? This whole resurrection just doesn't matter, does it? And again, Jesus confounds them. And so the Pharisees say, oh, Pharisees say, okay, let's have a go. And they try to trap him legally. And they come and say, so which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now you have ten to answer. Tell us now, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers so well that some of them have to say, well done, good answer, yeah. And so they can't catch him. And they realize that they, they, they're going to have to get rid of him some other way. And Jesus is a different kind of thing. While they are trying to shut him down, while they're trying to close down what he's doing, at the same time he's bringing hope and life to the lives of ordinary people. Forty years ago, just as, as uh, things were happening in this country that were creating more of a divide between rich and poor than there had been for many years, uh, I won't go into the politics of it, but David Shepherd, the saintly Bishop of Liverpool, wrote a book called Bias to the Poor about the gospel. And he said, you know what? Supporting paint and com community larder is a good idea. He didn't actually say that, but this was what he was saying. That the gospel has got a bias to the poor, to the afflicted, to the oppressed, to the downtrodden, to the disadvantaged. And if we ever forget that, we'll lose the power of the gospel. Because, said, said Shepherd, you can do church history, and you will find that at any point where the church is flourishing, it's flourishing amongst the poor. It's the people who need hope most who are first to come to Jesus. It's the people who realize that they're at the end of the rope that respond to the gospel. And we make a mistake if we fail to address the situation of people who are poor. He says this, in the Bible, the righteous God is not blind. His eyes are wide open. Because he is against sin, which distorts relationships between his children. He pushes away the oppressor and is active on behalf of those in special need. He sees the needs of widows, orphans, foreigners, the oppressed, and he acts for them. And Spurge says at times, this is God to, in contrast to strict justice. God isn't always fair. God has a bias towards the poor. And we need to reflect that in the way that we go about spreading the message of hope that Jesus brought. God is a God who cares about people. As Steve was saying, he loves you to bits, whether you know about him or you don't. And he cares about your situation. And when Christians come with that kind of a message, we have a God who wants to meet your needs, to let you out of prison, to release you into a whole new life. That's when people start to listen. King of hope, of holiness, a king of humility. That's enough for one morning. Let's just pray for a second before Steve comes back. And so we come to you, King Jesus, and we're challenged about how we represent you in front of other people. And your majesty, 
we can but bow. We lay our all before you now. In royal robes we don't deserve, we live to serve your majesty. Amen.